here today with an interview with Jamie Throgmorton. Jamie is really embracing the challenge of the uh, climate crisis and looking to stir things up and really make a difference. Um, she's put together a couple of initiatives that I thought was really interesting and I wanted to uh, share with people. And um, we've been talking about chatting and, and talking for a while. So, uh, Jamie, thanks for taking the time to get together today. Sure, Jim. I've been, I've been busy, but I'm glad to be here. No doubt, no doubt. you got your hands in a lot of different pots, and that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. So, um, you know, we originally connected through Facebook, and on Facebook you would well, first of all, why don't you give people a little bit of background about yourself? How did you, what have you done um, in terms of your professional life, and then how did you get involved with climate action? How did we get into this mess? Yeah. Um, okay, well, I was first a lawyer and then a high school teacher, and about seven years ago, I spent six months in India. I was teaching English to Buddhist nuns in the Himalayas in Ladakh, India, which is um, more like being in Tibet than the rest of India. It's a fascinating place. I was at 11,000 feet above sea level. It's a high desert area with glaciers right there, and the community is subsistence farming based. And it's, it's like taking a step back in time in terms of the clarity and the simplicity of the lifestyle that the people have. And over the course of almost six months that I was there, I was able to see the entire compressed uh, growing season. And um, it got me fascinated because I don't have a personal background in farming or ag here in the United States. And I started hearing and seeing everywhere I went uh, stories and posters about climate change. Hmm. And I, I thought at the time, I thought, well, why am I not hearing about this everywhere in the United States? Why did I have to come here to the ends of the earth? to be going in cafes and seeing posters about melting glaciers and polar bears and so forth. And that was really my, it just, the, the, the dichotomy or the, the contrast struck me. And I came home from that trip and not only had I learned a whole lot while I was there, but then I just dived in full time to learning about climate change. And the last seven years I've spent all of my you know, intellectual efforts have gone in that direction, and I've just become a really well-educated generalist, I'd say, about um, the climate crisis, the environmental ecological crisis. I've also had to learn about economics and business and politics, and well, the legal background has helped me, and um, the teaching background and mediation has also helped me, so I'm bringing all those things to bear to... Um, amplify the message about climate change as best I can. I guess that would be a good short short version. That's awesome. So you had started a, a group on Facebook called Climate Conversations, which I thought was, was interesting, uh, and it's all about, I guess, creating that dialogue to better inform people. Is that kind of the, the goal, or what did you have in mind with that? Well, I guess I'm just extrapolating from my own experience where I had to see it to to know it, to understand it. Um, learning what I learned in Ladakh and talking to farmers there, because I went back the next year to continue teaching in the summer. Um, and uh, so then I was armed with some knowledge and some awareness, so I interviewed quite a few farmers there. And at that point, they had said it had been about five summers that they had been very worried about their water supply because their glaciers are melting. And um, so 
I, I learned for myself by seeing what was going on on this planet, and then I figured, how, how else do people change? We only change by learning something directly, experiencing something, and being impacted emotionally or morally or intellectually or all of those to, to enough extent that we say, okay, I'm going to do something different about this. And since I live in the country that has profited the most off of the benefits of technology and all the advances of quote-unquote civilization since, let's say, the end of World War II, uh, for sure, um, I figure, you know, I have a moral responsibility to try and amplify the message of the damage that we're doing by living way beyond where we should be as far as planetary resources. So um, I guess I'm extrapolating from my own experience and saying, how does a person actually transform? A lot of what we do is just talk, and it's good. We have to educate, but somehow we have to get down to actually transforming, changing our behavior, and then and we can talk more about what that actually looks like mm-hmm. um, if, if that's interesting. But I just figure it comes out of that. I can, I can write papers. I can communicate all I want. But conversation seems like the way to actually engage people who are hearing about the problem but don't really know where to go for good information, don't yep. know who to talk to, um, and so forth. So I'm just um, yeah, following my instincts on that. That's awesome. So are you still in contact with people back in Ladakh, back in India? Yes, yes, it's an ongoing commitment. I uh, I talk to the nuns on on Skype and um, sometimes do some teaching online. And I've been invited to go back this summer, but I'm really hesitating to say yes because of um, my efforts to not fly so much. And yeah. that's a big that's a, the exact other corner. That's 12 hours time difference from where I am, so it can't get any farther than that. Yeah. And um, it's a big flight and a big carbon budget, so uh, I may or may not go back again. I I hope to but i'm not sure that i'll get to go back again but yes i'm in touch with the nuns all the time so Mm -hmm. let me me ask you this so they've been aware of like what's they've seen the changes and what's happening have they been able to come up with any actionable solutions to address the water situation in india because i know it's really kind of getting to uh to a uh crux yeah, I think there. First of all, there's India is such a big place that there are a lot of situ, a lot of different local situations, obviously, and we all have to, you know, we all have to remember that this problem is both local and global. The local problems in some of the big cities of South India, by which I mean the, the majority of India, um, I think are fairly intractable. It's going to be very, very difficult to solve water resource needs and food needs on the continent where the temperatures are getting up into the nearly 50 centigrade. That's in the 120s um, kind of temperatures in the summer in Delhi and other places where I have people, friends that are actually reporting on those those days on, onto the website and the page. So um, there are those problems. I think, personally, I think that the majority of India is going to be in very dire uh, situation as we go forward. Where I am up in Ladakh, where the nuns are up in Ladakh, is like a whole other world because it's up high in the Himalayas, so it's the total opposite. Yeah. But they only have a very short summer season, and they're dependent on the glaciers, so if the glaciers don't form because it's too warm and they don't get the proper rainfall and so on, then they won't be able to grow their crops, and so subsistence farming is the only way they can get by. Uh, they're certainly not going to be importing more food as time goes on. They, they're not a wealthy society where they can 
bring so much food in from other places. They do supplement from some food, but mostly they're dependent on that. So they ju- what they do to adjust right now is they just plant fewer fields. They have a sort of a terracing system. And the, the farmers are so in tune with it, they know exactly about how, how much water there's going to be how many fields they can plant. So they just adjust accordingly in it every year and they plant less acreage um, if, it, if the snowfall wasn't good enough. So you can that's what they're having to do. They're planting less and less acreage every year. So they're really feeling the survival pinch already. So because they, they know that they're not going to be able to water it, they're just not going to yep. overextend their, yep. their water budget, so to speak. Yep. Yep, and they, they're just basically set up in little villages right at the bottom of the glacial moraine, so the glacier melts straight down the mountain, and the village is right there at the bottom, and in kind of a triangular shape, and you can kind of picture they just terrace, the homes are kind of in the middle, and they kind of terrace around it for the farms, and they literally direct the water by, you know, very simple mechanisms to direct it into different patches of field, and, um, you know, they're, they're worried, they're very worried. It's one of those parts of the planet that it's amazing people survive in 365 days a year as it is. It's uh, minus 40 degrees in the winter uh, regularly, and wow. you know it's uh, amazing. Well, I know <laughs> that. Much uh, tougher than I am, I feel like a soft, soft Westerner, yeah. a North person myself. Even though I've lived a lot of quite a few years in third world and developing countries, but. Um, I'm not tough like they are. Yeah, I mean, it's really getting down to brass tacks as far as survivability uh, when you look at, like, those kinds of environments. Um, I know that the uh, water situation in India this summer was really kind of dire in a number of I think it was, like, 20 cities actually ended up going without water at some point oh. during... I mean, by city, I mean, like, over, like, 5 to 10 million people. Chennai, millions, yeah. 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 Like Chennai, Millions of people. And so, I mean, you have to... It's a temporary problem. They can bring in truckloads of water, but obviously over time, that's not a solution. Yeah, but that has to come from... wrong direction. Yeah, that has to come from somewhere else, so you're really draining the aquifer from from somewhere else. And and, um, the reality is that that has dire economic and social impacts. I know that they're... I think they've had a pretty slow economic situation over the past number of months. I don't, I don't know if they're in recession yet or still or not, but I know it was it was fairly uh, it was fairly uh, bad economically, but now they've also for some reason uh, the government in India has passed a, uh, a a nationality law which has led to violence between Hindus and Muslims which you know, the, the violence, the social violence that kind of follows in the wake of climate change, I think, is really one of the the unappreciated impacts of what's happening. Because when you end up with those kinds of stresses, it leads to a lot of other conflicts that, you know, a lot of people don't connect the dots on. But, you know, if you didn't have that kind of stress to begin with, you probably wouldn't have those conflicts. Well, I, yeah, I read off the top on that subject, three different places in the world come to mind immediately that we have, we are seeing uh, now present-day conflict, uh, evidence of what you just said, and that's Syria, Mexican, yeah. Mexico, and Bangladesh. And uh, Syria, the whole civil war there was pre, was 
premised in part on a four-year drought that desertified great sections of the countryside for farming, killed so many of the farm animals that the people couldn't farm anymore, and they started flooding to the cities. So there were a couple of million extra people in Aleppo. I, I believe it's Aleppo. Is that the capital? I that, yeah. hope I got that right. Yeah. Anyway, and so that just was like putting tinder on the fire for the, for the Civil War with that many people who were starving. So that was a definite climate. The whole thing was exacerbated. It probably wouldn't have happened without climate change having caused that much desert and drying. Mexico, I think the whole situation with the wall and the people that were kind of been coming up to the United States uh, although it's hard to get correct numbers on that, I've seen reports from reporters who've been embedded with the migrants from Central America. The reason that they're leaving is because their crops aren't growing. They're yeah. not leaving because of some dictator or some terrible political situation. I mean, that does exist in some places like northern Mexico, but the majority of the people are leaving because they can't grow their crops on their land. And obviously the countries that don't provide enough social system net, uh, security net to, to protect them, that's part of it too. But the, the original problem is the bad one, which is if the land isn't producing food, people have to move. Yeah. And they have to migrate away from the equator. And the, the Bang Bangladesh example comes back to India because I understand that, well, Bangladesh is one of the lowest um, elevation countries in the world. They already have... Um, the Sundarbans, which is a big, huge area of the of the country, that's a very like um, uh, I'm forgetting the word. It's but it's very water. It, the water is a big part of life there. You live on islands. The houses are up on stilts, and there's huge flooding, and um, and it's normal. Flooding and is a normal part of life, and, and they're sort of set up around that. But even there, even there, they're having so much water intrusion that there people are having to abandon that whole section of the country, and they want to move inland and up upland. And in the meantime, India has quietly um, strengthened its entire border, hardened its entire border with Bangladesh because they can see the writing on the wall. Yeah. When people have to leave the low-lying coastal areas in the one of the poorest countries in the world, of course they're going to be seeking survival elsewhere. And when they hit up against borders of other countries that aren't going to allow them in, it's going to be it's going to be very very painful. I mean, I'm, I just. This is what I live with in my awareness, that this is already happening. It's going to continue to happen. It's going to get worse and worse. And the rest of our lifetimes now, um, you know, this is, this is the flavor of the rest of our lives. And the United Nations, of course, has recommended through passage open corridors for migration for anyone who needs to leave for climate reasons from equatorial regions to go north or south of the equator, whichever direction they happen to, you know, wherever, whatever continent they're on. And, uh, and of course, most countries are not going to have that. So, um, you know, I think anybody who really thinks it through can see the writing on the wall here. So, uh, you know, one of the issues that we've talked about kind of extensively inside the group is this dynamic of, you know, how do you as an individual respond to that change in terms of society? Is it a matter of closing off and protecting yourself or opening your heart and trying to help those who are at risk, right? Well, that you've cut to the chase, Jim. I think that's pretty much right where we as individuals can do the most good. And the opposite is what 
the natural knee-jerk reaction of most people in these fearful, uncertain times will do. The opposite will be to hunker down and to protect me and mine and um, not even understanding the big picture of what's going on and what's causing the problems. It'll be a simple us and them kind of situation that I think is going to be just brutal. Um, so I couldn't agree more. I mean, to me, the whole thing is a very, my, my work now, I mean, I'm retired. I, I never imagined that the last how many decades of my life would be with this focus. I had no idea. I mean, I didn't ever think this is what the rest of my life was going to look like, but there's nothing more important that I can do now, but just try my best to try and amplify the message and help people prepare themselves so that they're less likely to be surprised and I know by human nature, if people are less, are more well prepared and more in community, they will be more open-hearted. Yeah. So I, I just hope that I can, you know, put a little pebble in the pond at least. But I can't not do it. That's all. I just knowing what I've known and uh, knowing what I know and having lived through these last um, seven years deeply immersed in this, I I can't not. I can't not try, even though, of course, there's days where you think, well, I think, well, why bother? But I, I know why I bother, because of justice and fairness and suffering and wanting to alleviate all of those. And I think you hit on it. How do we be more open-hearted? And I think education and community are really primary to that. No doubt. So I know that um, you're in the process of developing a, a website around the work yep. that you do, and we're going to... You know, once you have that up and going in January, we'll uh, we'll dive into that a lot deeper. What are some of the other projects you have going? You're you're also working with a, a film project, is that right? Or film class yeah. on climate I change? Have. I've donated donated some money to a, a filmmaker who um, has made a couple of films from the perspective of uh, an Alzheimer's film from the perspective of the woman who had Alzheimer's and a childbirth film from the perspective of the woman who was giving birth um, that has become a big educational film in the childbirth um, circles. And now he wants to make a similar film of climate change from the Earth's perspective. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think that's a really brilliant idea. So I have helped him financially and with some housing and artist residency kind of space. Um, and I'll continue to support. I just sounds like a good thing to me. So I... I the second part of the Facebook page that I started is climate conversations and coaching. And I've developed, um, really honed my coaching skills, and um, I've been trained in something called Warm Data Lab, which is a fabulous technique for bringing groups of stakeholders together and helping them kind of drop their silos and relax their pre their biases and have a real conversation, a more real conversation about something. So it's perfect to use, I think, in climate circles to um, or any group that's trying to make decisions that are challenging. And um, we have such we all know we have so much over specialization, and that's necessary in a complex world. But on the other hand, um, it, it has its drawbacks. And so, uh, you know, I'm just using my my natural instinct to want to bring people together to um, enhance my training so that I can then train others and try to just um, expand that, um, expand that. That's interesting. So from the perspective of doing the coaching and, and um, that you had mentioned and working with, with groups, is it that they seek you out or do you have a way to reach out to 
organizations to try to start that conversation? Um, good, good point. I think the way the, the website is envisioned now is that what I'm, what I'm going to be doing is offering uh, anyone who I'm calling a host, a potential host, of, climate, of a climate conversation in their neighborhood or their town or their school or their college or their business or wherever, a group of 10, 20, 30 people. It doesn't have to be a lot of people, but people that are local that, that want to talk about climate change and learn about it. Um, I will provide a year's worth of curriculum and suggestions for activities and mm. updates to current things that are going on. And that will cover everything from the science of what's going wrong, the technology that might help, politics, you know, um, law, legal changes, um, anyway, anything that can be done, as well as social initiatives that are going on that people might want to join in, protest movements, whatever, you know, the whole gambit, really. Mm-hmm. So um, I think by doing that, I can really harness my skills and parlay that to other people who might not have the teaching background or the speaking background or the the deep knowledge of climate change, but they might say, okay, but with her help, with this help of One Great Journey material, I'll be able to start a group, so I'll do that. And then I'll just, you know, coach and guide people through a whole year. I mean, so, you know, that's how I'm organizing it. And uh, so it'll be three things. It's mostly it's education, it's social glue building activities for the commu- for the group of the community that's there, and then it's action, action-oriented um, items and decisions that local communities might take. And it could it could well be very very local, but that's where the solutions come. So even though the problems are massive, we have to bring it down to individuals making that transformational change in their heart and mind, and then doing something differently and doing it in community. So I think it hits on all the things that are important, and I'm I'm really happy that I'm having the opportunity to to do that. And the reason I mentioned the end coaching part is that I, I also will offer coaching. I also offer coaching to climate activists who are on the front lines. Um, I do it for free, and I offer that because it's an easy thing to get burned out in. Yeah. And we need these people that are ahead of the curve to stay ahead of the curve and to stay active. So that's another piece of my personal offering. And also um, the personal funding for initiatives that I found that were helpful. Um, besides the, the film I just mentioned, there's another project I've also highlighted on the page called Tempestries, which is a visual representation through yarn, uh, different colors of yarn, shows the climate changing over time. And it's a very powerful teaching tool. And I've helped that young um company get off the ground for the last several years as well and I support them every way I can and I will continue to because I think you know when I find something that really excites me I think okay let me help amplify the message through supporting them so those are just I just kind of it's a very organic thing I just do what comes to me and strikes me and then I'm uh, fully in it I'm fully you know no questions I know I know that it resonates with me and I hope that it will with others that's awesome so when you like, have you had conversations with people who are, are, I guess, uh, despondent, uh, that don't feel like anything can be done, so why bother? Uh, how do you deal with those conversations? Okay, that's a good question. And I, I think that part of the reason that this new effort of mine is based for, is based on one year, is it, it's in, it's really, it's not likely to change anybody's advice to go to one lecture or talk or conversation about climate. This is changing, we're talking about the need, especially us here in the really uh, most progressive, uh, most um, 
the most carbon polluting, highest carbon footprint countries like Canada's the highest, we're the second, Europe, you know, Central Europe is, uh, Western Europe is the next highest. Uh, we need to change our lifestyles. We need to reduce our carbon footprints. We need to simplify. We need to degrow. We need to think about how our actions are affecting the whole entire world around us. And so I feel like that's the group I can naturally speak to. Uh, so that does create a lot of despondency. That obviously when people learn that their whole world that they saw lions and tigers in Africa and on the plains and all that beautiful stuff we learned from Nat Geo growing up and you find out that, oh my gosh, half of those, half of the entire world's animal population has gone, has gone in my lifetime, in 50 years, it's gone. We've done that. You know, we collectively have done that. And it's natural. I mean, it, to me, it's totally natural that that produces fear, anxiety, anger, despondency. And the more you get into it, you, I think anybody who's really watching and paying attention will get to a point of utter despondency where you throw up your hands and say, oh, my God, what do we do? Actually, I think that's a really powerful point. And if people don't really get to that point, I'm not sure that they can really change their behavior in any meaningful way. So I think it's, I think it's important just to acknowledge that that's a perfectly natural human reaction to mm. this crisis. It's a crisis. It's a catastrophe. This yeah. is not a uh, small thing. So despondency is normal. I just Part of the group will be helping each other work through that in sequence because I went through a full-on grief for like six months. I was grieving like I was grieving. I was grieving the death of my worldview. And I really had to just completely acknowledge that how I thought this world was and as beautiful as this earth is, is no longer true. And I wanted to preserve it. I wanted to help it. But I had to go through a very deep grieving process before I could come out the other side and say, okay, now I'm ready to use that information and take action. So having been through it myself, mm. I feel qualified to help others walk through that. It's not something to be avoided. It's totally normal. And there are days that I feel despondent. And then I just go back to, it's nothing lasts. Everything is constantly changing. So it's, I think it's just normal flow in, in a situation like this, don't you? I mean, what, what, would be, uh, what else would we expect in such dire circumstances? You know, there's a... Um... There's a, uh, a phrase in economics where they say, uh, and it's, it's uh, this time is different. And it's, it's, it's mocking in a way because um, economic systems don't really change. And so even though somebody says, well, this time it's different, and usually it's not. But in this particular case, clearly we're dealing with something that's completely different that you know other generations have not had to face and so you're you're dealing with something that's so novel it's like we just don't have the we haven't been given the tools or the equipment to to deal with them and well it's novel on the global scale that we have but it's not novel i mean the sinai peninsula was the cradle of western civilization and it's a desert now because it was over farmed overused over resourced it was the resources were removed. The, the cradle of China civilization was on the Los Plateau. They have regreened the Los Plateau to a great extent and are working on regenerating life, condition, life-giving conditions in places where previous generations of human beings have degraded the landscape. Sure. So we have done this in smaller places all over the world. It's all happening in small places, and that's why the solutions are local. But um, it, So what's different now is the global scale and the fact that we have communications in a way that we can see that. 
and it, and and it is global. And I can very much understand the the, the, the anger of the poorer countries of the world where they're living much closer to a sustainable level of resource use, and they're they're being their lives are being cut short. Their future is being cut short by people like us in the you know, upper echelons, let's say, anyone who has the ability to fly and drive and has houses and heating and air conditioning and comforts and conveniences, all of that, which we call a good modern, you know, lifestyle, is contributing to the problem. We're, we're the ones benefiting, and many others will take the burden way before we do. So it's different in that sense that we can see the damage that's happening all the way around the world because, of course, we're all interconnected, and we've let the problem go long enough that now it is truly global. Um, there's, there's no way to consider this as a local problem anymore, even though you know, local action is where anything happens. Action takes is extremely hyper-local. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, those are my thoughts on that, that thing, that issue of, it, is this new? This time it's different. Yeah. No, I, I completely... It's different in how far we've let it go. Yeah. Um, it's different in how much knowledge we have at this stage in time, at this point in history, that we could bring to bear if we were really concertedly trying to work on this. We have so much more knowledge and technology and understanding of the interconnectedness of the world and our natural systems. If we were bringing all that to bear, if people were really listening to the scientists and saying, okay, let's get the best we've got, let's put it in the right direction here, what can we do? That's different. So that's a positive thing that's different. Yeah. And, you know, once, once more enough people, once we hit that hundredth monkey moment when, you know, the, the concern becomes widespread among humanity, then we'll have a chance of, you know, really grappling with it. And I don't know when that moment's going to happen. I'm happy to, to notice that in the last 18 months to two years, public awareness has increased greatly in the yeah. circles that I interact with. Yeah. So I'm pleased to see that we're moving in the right direction on that. It, it seems like it's too slow, but whatever it is, is better than the other way. So. Well, so is part of the solution of awareness a matter of having the people who are literally asleep, you know, be woken up by a climate disaster that hits close to home, whether it's the fires in California or the hurricanes that are increasingly becoming more destructive in the the southeast or, you know, the rain bomb that literally flooded the entire Midwest. I mean, there's yeah. there's people yeah. there who never in their lives had seen so much so much water and i know for a fact i I saw a picture not too like a few days ago that there's a section of iowa that's literally still underwater from what fell Uh um in the spring so you know well you know it's interesting i think you're right i i think that um anyone who's directly impacted by a huge disaster climate-related natural disaster can begin to really, um, even if they're not ready to intellectually acknowledge it, emotionally they start, they get rocked. You know, they get rocked. I say that having been lived through the Thomas Fire here in Southern California two years ago right now, and um, that was at the time the biggest fire in California history and led to the Montecito mudslide where 20 five people were killed, mm. and um, that was a, a long-running local disaster because of that fire and the scope of that fire. It was scary, and it affected this town for a long time, and it really did change people's minds, so from that experience, I can see that that kind of event does 
galvanize some change. Of course, people tend to forget it after a while, and if things still continue to be relatively good on a day-to-day basis, it kind of kind of goes into the background. Um, but more and more of those events should be part of amplifying the message. In my in my view, is linking those kind of events to the bigger picture. So this this problem in Iowa with the flooding twice this summer, Iowa, Indiana, that whole section, that should be called a breadbasket failure. Crops were severely impacted there this summer. If we have too many breadbasket failures at the same time around the world, we're going to start having problems with our food supply. It needs to be said so people recognize, yeah, that's where we get our food from, even though we're kind of disconnected from it. Those are the kind of messages that I think need to be amplified. Um, I did, I heard some, you know, I heard Here's an example of why I say that. I heard a farmer interviewed in that situation who blamed the whole thing on the Army Corps of Engineers for having failed to create the right kind of dike upriver from where he farms. Mm. And he was absolutely unwilling to realize that there's a changing pattern of nature behind that flooding, which is only going to lead to more and more flooding. Yeah. That's not a one-off event that the Army Corps of Engineers could have or should have anticipated. This is, but he was unwilling, you know, all he could see was, I blame the Army Corps of Engineers. And yeah. that kind of thinking, you know, people are at all places with their understanding, and all we can do is keep keep plugging away. Um, what, well, what are you going to do? Everybody's got their own perspective from where they've lived their lives, and believe me, I get frustrated when I hear the stories, but if I just got frustrated and stopped, then I wouldn't feel good. So I just try to figure out a way to turn every um, situation into an opportunity for um, awakening people that haven't previously seen the writing on the wall. Yeah. I, mean, I think that that, um, that lesson there of the, the, the guy not wanting to recognize the change is uh, really illustrative of the fact that for our own financial and economic security, we have to be open to recognizing what's happening and what is changing and how it's changing. Because if we're not open to seeing that change and then adapting, that failure, that failure to adapt is going to lead to your impoverishment. It's going to lead to your family, you know, not being able to survive in any positive way going forward. And so yeah. if you and historically, you could say that that, that has, um, I, one of the areas I'm now interested in is looking at times in history when <clears throat> climate-related problems have led to the, the downfall of civilization. Funny, funny that you say that. Funny that you say that because I have a whole number of interviews with anthropologists lined up because of that exact that exact uh, approach. I, I agree. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's absolutely right. I mean, failure to adapt that's ultimately what breaks down any species. I mean, nature on this planet, the natural laws will keep keep acting the way that they do, and whether you know we can try to influence them or better we can try to work within them and understand them and have more respect for them as we are part of nature. We are nature, um, but it, nature will out. Nature will have the last uh, last say. And it may well be that in order to restore survivability on this planet, humans will have to go. And that may well be the case. But in the meantime, I say, why not use this intelligence that we've also evolved over this long time scale 
to try and solve the problem. So another thing I, I think of now that I say to people that feel despondent and feel like their individual actions don't matter is we got here by billions and billions of individual actions, and we can go a different direction by billions and billions of different actions. It, it, it is the individual action summed up that creates the conditions that we live in. Yeah. And it, there's no, I mean, it, it's just, that's just simple common sense. I mean, that, I, I understand when people say it as a way of just kind of venting their frustration, but in reality, changing behavior changes the outcome, and nothing else will. Yeah. So, I, you know, even though on an individual scale, if I recycle a dope or whatever, that individual thing may not change, but if I start to change, then my changing consciousness will lead to different changes as my view changes. Yeah. So it's, it's the right thing to do, not just to recycle more, but to change consciousness gradually into even better behaviors and influences on others. And so it's, it's a, I think the pebble in the pond is a good metaphor. We, we throw the biggest pebble in the pond that we can. And do what we can and then see what biggest circle we can influence. And these are the kind of advice I give people because that's what I boiled it down to. I can't say what the right thing is for everyone to do, but everyone has to look into their own lives and see what are the changes that they're willing to make. And we have to stretch into discomfort. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we, it, convenience is killed. I, I look around in my life and, uh, you know, I live in, a, in places in the West Coast where are very... Uh, aware of the problems that we don't have plastic single-use bags and we don't have styrofoam. But when I go into a restaurant with styrofoam, I say, I'm, I can't take that. Can't you change that styrofoam? That thing will never de never biodegrade and so forth. I mean, everywhere we go, we have to make the small decisions that will collectively add up, and they do. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge failure of imagination among people in general is underestimating the power they have as individuals to come together in mass and make change. And we could, we could gain a lot of ground on this problem if we really amp up the protest, the Extinction Rebellion, a la Extinction Rebellion, and others to really say, we see what's happening here. And even if those powers that be who are benefiting the most from the system want to just feed business as usual, continue, we're not going to put up with that because this is life and death. But, you know, I, we're, I expect a lot more of that to come. Well, the um, your example with... Uh you know, saying something at the restaurant, I think, is is key because uh, the reality is, unless you say something, they'll continue as they have for the past 20, 30, 50 years. And so it becomes a matter of speaking up. And, you know, that itself is, you know, taking action to raise awareness and to maybe help them make a better decision. Maybe there's another you know, paper, you know, less right. destructive product that can be used. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, they used to wrap, you know, uh, food in uh, newspaper um, back when. Yeah, or, or palm leaves. I was yeah, watching a palm leaves, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrapping burritos or these, you know, equivalent in, in Vietnam to these, wrapping them in these leaf, banana leaves. And, you know, we can use, there are a lot of products out there. There's a lot of, you know, um, I don't know capitalism around the quote-unquote green movement and so forth. I mean, there are a lot of technologies available, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I feel like if I go through the day and don't turn every conversation I have in some way to the situation we're living in, then, I'm, then I haven't done my best for that day. And it might be uncomfortable, but I've learned over time how to do it in a way that's not, that doesn't put everyone off. 
I listen, I try to find out, I just start lightly and then find out where somebody's at, what do they do, what is, what's important, and then I steer the conversation into ways so I feel like I'm always amplifying. Today I went to an economics discussion group this morning that I've been part of for about five years. I stopped going because I, I got to the point of frustration with the conversation, which, um, you know, to me is about things like moving the deck chairs on the Titanic while the Titanic is sinking. And so talking about, uh, you know, fiscal policy and monetary policy and how to da 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 And I just, I get, I get so frustrated now that I can't even go. And I, I laughed today. I said, guys, I know this is, you know, why are we talking about this? Let's crowd and make a new economics that can work, a new mixed system of some kind of capitalism and, and socialism and environmentalism. If you put those three things on the table together, maybe we have the ingredients to make a new functional world order that without, you know, killing off half of our numbers or more. And so I, I know that I run a risk in different places by annoying people, but it does kind of stop conversations dead sometimes, and I feel like then I've done my job. Well, what's... My friendliness, my friendliness uh, you know, keeps me in good stead with people, but, you know, and I don't beat it to death, but I make sure that I make use your point. the living examples yeah. to make the point, because otherwise you're right, how does anything change? Yeah. And people are grateful for the most part. That's what I find. Most people are grateful. They're like, I didn't know that, or thank you for doing what you do. I hear that all the time. Yeah. So it's, I'm just a person who's just taking what I know, putting my skills to work as best I know how. So I think anybody can do it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, awareness builds and grows over time. But um, in terms of, uh, you mentioned um, policy and so forth, one of the, in your conference, one of the interesting things is over the past year, the Federal Reserve has actually, especially the San Francisco Fed, has um, really embraced addressing climate change within Fed policy, which as a central bank, I think is key because it determines where the overall direction of the economy needs to go, which, you know, there, there really is no higher decision maker, I think, to affect policy than the Fed um, or the Bank of England or the ECB. The ECB this week announced a plan to fund green bonds for um clean tech development for renewable energy um, and basically uh, closed off the spigots for, you know, oil and for uh, carbon uh, companies. So those are all positive changes, which, again, just by making the decision, you tell the decision makers, well, we're not going to get as much money over there, so we have to go over here and kind of have to change what we do. But just by making the decision, you've already started the process of change. Yep, yep. And I, I try to watch the, those things as kind of harbingers of what's to come. And even though the majority of the public, of the people in the world, have no idea what that even means, what you just said, um, you know, those are important things because you start to see how the thinking of the, those that are in the seats of power that really are making the, the machinery operate of the, you know, of our climate uh, fossil fuel fueled world um, operate, they, they, you start to see turns, divestment, um, what you talked about now, insurance companies, um, and so forth. They're, 
the military, the military, even though our president acts like there's nothing happening because it suits him and his, his um, supporters, um, the military is actively working on climate abatement yeah. and climate mitigation problems because most of their bases are low-lying places around the world, if nothing, if nothing else. Um, plus, they love solar energy to power things that are out in the field, so they are reliant on a fossil fuel you know, truck to bring oil and fuel and gas out to you know, different areas. So there's a lot of things happening that are positive, and most people just don't know about that. So that's part of what I try to do is keep track of leading-edge developments and, and hope people will find something that jazzes them, something they really care about. If it's protecting the birds in a certain wetland, do it, because that's part of what we need to do to turn the whole system around, regaining a, a great great deal of appreciation and hum, humility and appreciation of the intricacies and the interweb of life that we're a part of and the loss of bees and the fact that we don't get bugs on our windshields anymore yeah. should make people quake yeah. in fear. Those, that is our survival at stake, and everyone's just like, well, I don't have to clean my windshield anymore. No, that's a bad thing. You know, mm -hmm. We should pay more for gas so we have a true sense of the cost of the, of the fuel rather than having it buried in subsidies so that we don't really realize that the costs of fossil fuel are way higher. Uh, and that's not even really considering most of the environmental damage, which is still off the table in most you know, accounting systems and corporate uh, legality um, measures and so forth. So, there, but there's so many other topics we could go on for a long time. About. <laughs> uh, it's, we it's could. It's interesting. At least I consider this a very worthy way to spend the rest of my life. It's, it's intellectually challenging. It's socially challenging. It's sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of trying to go upstream a bit and to change culture, change business as usual. Of course, it's, it's pretty interesting. So I feel, you know, this is, you can tell through, through my comments how I, how I um, am working my way through this quagmire. Uh, but, you know, it's not bad overall. No, I not think... A bad, not a bad life. And I feel like, you know, I, I certainly can pay back some of um, the carbon budget that I've exhausted. At least I can pay back some of it by living a simpler life now and spreading the word as much as I can to others like me who are among the worst offenders. So, yeah. Um, a lot of people... A lot of people view like the fact that you have to kind of change your lifestyle as like oh I gotta I gotta do radical changes but some of the some of the things that um, have the biggest impact are actually not huge changes at all like you said uh, instead of taking that extra plane flight you know not doing it or instead of doing three yeah. doing one um, doing um, you know, a vegan or a vegetarian diet, you know, everybody, a lot of people view it as a, you know, that's just too hard, I can't do that, well, then, you know, have meat like once a week instead of, you know, seven yeah, times a week, exactly. and, yeah, um, exactly. you know, do what you can to reduce your impact, I, I can't remember yeah. the last time, like, Betsy and I have gone to a a mainline retailer to shop like our our right. shopping consists of going to the uh, the local thrift store and uh, yeah. and seeing what's there not only I mean you still have the same good quality it's just a fraction of the price and you're you're reusing you know what somebody else and that, uh, had. That on something that I, I hope will come out of these roots that I'm uh, spawning is um, a more, more sense of community where people yeah. say let's do a full bank Let's do a book bank. Yeah. Let's do a, let's do a, you know car sharing. Yeah. Let's uh, see who's got what skills to contribute. As things get tough, I, that's just that. I think that satisfies our deep need 
for a deep human need. That's our human need. We do better in collaboration and community than in this idea that we have now of pure competition that that's the best thing. That, that isn't. I mean, competition or something that makes us try to make innovation is fine. But the thing that really makes us survive on this planet, when otherwise we're pretty weak little beings, don't have any real big measure of defense. Um, you know, we, we have narrow temperature ranges that are successful and so forth. We don't have any claw. We don't, you know, we have all the things. We, we need to use what we do have. And um, I just, um, I don't know. I, yeah, there's moments I can feel overwhelmed. Well, but but like you said, like in community, you can find, you know, the support that you need to get through it. And really, I think yeah, at the end go. of the day, yeah. that's the key. So yeah. um, if um, somebody wants to reach out to you, uh, how could they how could they contact you to learn more about the work that you do? One green journey at gmail.com. Yep. Gotcha. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat. And uh, like I said, this is just the first of uh, many conversations, I'm sure. I appreciate that you're doing it. You know, I, I just, we're kindred spirits in the way we're at least trying to do our best with a very un, uncommon, extraordinary situation. So I appreciate that you're in the, in the same. Uh, same thing. Really awesome. Do. All right. Well, take care. Have a good night, and I'll talk to you soon.